because we don't have any theme music, this is just how we start. We do a cold open. Hi, Damon. Shaddy here. Hi. Nice to sort of meet you electronically, digitally here. Yeah, likewise. Apparently, we're both Pennsylvanians. I've heard rumors about that. Yeah, I, I remember when we first started uh, corresponding a little bit. Uh, isn't aren't you from Bryn Mawr? Or yeah, something like yeah, that? that's right. Yeah, that's about ten minutes from my house. I'm in Wynwood. Oh yeah, of course. Yes, are you there right now? Yes. Oh cool. Okay. Oh my goodness. Um, so, how's a how's the whole uh, uh, COVID thing been for you, Damon? I mean, uh, are you? Uh, are you working from home the whole time? Are you getting out at all? Like, is there an office to go to? What's what's it look like? Uh, no, I do I do three columns a week for the week, uh, and that the week is independent of the Bulwark. Yes, it's just a kind of general interest website and uh, magazine. Uh, so I write those three columns uh, on any you know various political and cultural topics, and then I also do uh, the, the weekly podcast uh, called Beg to Differ with uh, uh, the Bulwark. And then I also uh, have always, for the last several years at least, had uh, another job of some kind. Uh, for a long time, I was an acquisitions editor at the University of Pennsylvania Press. Uh, last fall, uh, or actually spring rather, I was teaching at Ursinus College outside of, uh, outside of Philadelphia. And starting uh, in about a month, I'll be teaching in the critical writing program at uh, Penn at the University oh, very of cool. Pennsylvania. Very cool. So I'm a busy guy, but uh, it, it it's made easier by the fact that at least since COVID, all of it is done right from my house. Uh, I, I really never go anywhere. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, Shadi and I have been like breaking COVID quarantine for most of the time, uh, like at least to record the podcast. There's like a couple episodes we got a little scared and then did remote, but like more or less it's been. We were early adopters of being in the same room. Like there was a time when that was really frowned upon. Yeah. Well, I mean, it has yeah. a lot. Go ahead, David. No, I just uh, at the the uh, the Beg to Differ podcast originally when we started it almost a year ago, everybody on it was in Washington, and they would all meet at the Bulwarks um, studios in in D.C. And I was the only one remote because I live in, near Philadelphia. But since COVID, it's all become remote. So we're doing this crazy thing where they're all four of us plus a producer plus a guest. So basically sick tracks all coming in over the internet and recording six separate audio feeds and then they have to be synthesized together. So I guess we sort of, uh, you know, well, well down the road toward digital everything. You know, nobody ever sees another human being face to face. It's, it's kind of bad though, isn't it? I mean, I, I, I get the sense, I don't know if it's true, um, like for example, like the, the the New York Times insanity. I one of my my early theories over you know the whole Tom Cotton thing had something to do with the fact that that it's hard to uh, manage large institutions like virtually, and a lot of the sort of I don't know, just sort of the the stridentness of it all has something to do with the fact that we don't actually interact face to face. That there's something. Um, dehumanizing about all of this and that that's that's like leading to whatever whatever this this kind of crazy moment is I mean it certainly contributes to it I think I mean uh, I don't know if uh, either of you are on slack um, I you know I, I have no trouble with slack at the week the week has a very small staff we only have about I think in our main slack channel probably about 15 or so people who are on there regularly and we're all very nice to each other and everyone gets along fine. But I've heard that, you know, a lot of the real nastiness of the times is taking place 
in these Slack channels where like 3,000 people are all sort of hanging out, interacting day after day, not seeing each other face-to-face in the Times building. And as with Twitter, when you're kind of disembodied and just a kind of Cartesian subject floating there in the ether, you sort of feel empowered and invincible and you, you feel capable of, uh, you know, hurling lightning bolts down from Mount Olympus with, with no consequences and then everybody's doing it and you're triggering each other and it gets, it gets ugly fast in a way that I agree would be much less likely if you are actually meeting kind of in the, in the building cafeteria for lunch. And I've always been impressed that there are people who talk a lot of trash to me on, on Twitter, but in the pre-COVID times when we'd sometimes see each other at social gatherings or house parties or whatever, and then they, they'd, they'd be a little bit awkward when, when they saw me and they would just like engage in normal, friendly conversation. Like they didn't have the gut, like they didn't have the guts to kind of tell me off to my face. And it, it led to this kind of like weird, but now, now that we're probably not going to see people, except for maybe our closer friends and people we actually like spending time with, in, at, at least until the COVID era ends, that we're sort of back to this situation where they really don't have to worry about seeing me in public. So I think it, it might only get worse. But anyway, this is all we should maybe... Um, <laughs> well, before you do your formal introduction of, of, our, of our special guest... Um, we always forget to do this, and we should probably start doing it. Um, we have a Patreon now, and I don't like actually. I feel like there's something very marketing and selling about it, but this is the world we live in. But if you guys like our podcast, um, you should maybe think about becoming Patreon members, and then you'll get some bonus episodes and other special perks. You can do that by going to patreon.com slash W-O-C, which does not stand for women of color. It stands for wisdom of crowds. <laughs> yeah, big mistake. Anyway, Damon, it's it's great to have you here. Uh, Damon Linker, uh, as, as, as you've already introduced yourself um, of the week and um, uh, uh, doing a podcast uh, at, at The Bulwark. Um, we should also mention his book. Yes, yes, yes. Well, so so Damon, unless he doesn't want us to mention. Well, it. I have a couple of books, although they're, they're a little on the old side at this point. But well, I'm happy to bring them up. Yeah, I mean, uh, you're, you're in my mind, you're you're best known for the Theocons, right? Or would you probably, would you dispute yeah. that? Yeah. Um, no, I think I think so. Probably. Well, so so you know the, I mean, one way we could we could talk about it. I, I definitely want to talk about your your um, your column in the week. I thought it was. I was telling Shadi, I think it's spot on. And I think, you know, as I think I, I, I might have texted you uh, earlier, I, I feel like, uh, you know, Shadi, and we've been talking about it here on the podcast, is fighting the fights on the left with, uh, you know, uh, some of this, you know, resurgent wokeism, anti-liberal stuff. But to me, because maybe I'm on the center right, I, I, I can take a, a sort of some distance and watch what's happening over there. But to me, like, the real fight is on the right. And maybe we can talk a little bit about, you know, you and how you got to where you are today before we even dive into your piece, maybe. Like, do you, do you, do you see, how do you, how do you, I don't know, give it, give it a shot. Just give, let me know how you feel about today and sort of your political trajectory. Would you say you're, you're generally a man of the center right? Is that fair? 
Um, I these days I describe myself as as a centrist because I'm I'm sort of uh, I, I don't really fit in many ideological boxes. It sort of depends on what policies we're talking about on one dimension, and then kind of what basic assumptions about human nature and politics we're talking about. Um, on most uh, kind of economic policy, or in the U.S. we could say domestic policy issues, I'm pretty much center-left. Um, uh, I mean, you know, for instance, I have no real objection to pretty much anything that Barack Obama did when he was president on domestic policy. Uh, I mean, when we get into social policy, then I tend to become a little bit more center-right in the sense that I think would be better for liberal democracies if uh, kind of left-leaning parties were a little bit more um, humble in their victory on social issues and not kind of try to force more socially conservative members of the polity to kind of bow down toward uh, more secular or more individualistic uh, ideas of morality and things like this. So I would push a lot less uh, stridently on social issues of, of from the center left. And then on foreign policy, as Shadi is aware, uh, definitely, because we, we've gone round and round a little bit about this. I'm totally off sides. I'm much more of a kind of a, a, a little bit of a more hardline realist. Uh, who defines America's national interests more narrowly than they tend to be in Washington, at least in the last uh, few decades. So I'm sort of all over the map. Now, I did used to be more uh, on the right uh, back uh, about, I don't know, 20 years ago uh, through around 2005 when I quit a job working at First Things magazine and sort of had a break from that uh, in writing The Theocons, my first book. Uh, so back then I was never a really uh, very devout or committed member of the religious right, but I did have a kind of pluralistic uh, uh, sympathy for uh, social conservatives and some sympathy philosophically to where they were coming from. But I, I became kind of disgusted with some of the interactions between the magazine and its policy stances in the Bush administration with the Iraq war and related things that I didn't support. So that all fell apart. And I then migrated a few clicks left to the center left, kind of where the new Republic was at that time, uh, at least on a lot of issues. Uh, and uh, I stayed there until that all fell apart um, around 2014 when all the old guard sort of either quit or got fired uh, and uh, now I'm sort of homeless, just kind of marooned here in the center. Um. <laughs> and, and, and Damon, am I imagining this, that you, you're a convert of some sort from one thing to another? I mean, you religiously. Mean, re religiously? I, yeah, that's also its own, like, I, I'm very much a pilgrim, I guess you could say. I was raised as a secular Jew. I had uh, a period in my 30s when I uh, converted to Catholicism uh, and... Uh, tried very much to uh, to go along with that and believe, work up faith in it, uh, sort of as what I would like to be true about the universe. But it it sort of didn't take uh, both intellectually and then with the uh, the kind of sexual abuse scandal with uh, priests and bishops. Uh, it sort of morally fell apart as well. And uh, so I, by this point, I'm totally estranged from the church, making me one of the very few people who can actually describe themselves as a Catholic convert and a lapsed Catholic at the same time. I was going to say that, um, you, uh, you know, 
if Judaism doesn't work and Christianity doesn't work, there's always a third option. <laughs> right. Yeah. I mean, I'm sort of I'm sort of homeless on every dimension now. Uh, so you know, I'm just kind of off by myself uh, trying to figure out the world. I guess you could so, say. So so you know, I mean, what one way to to, to think about it? Uh, you you also uh, like what's your relationship with Mark Lilla? Am I did you study with him or or? Uh yeah, he, he represents probably my longest standing kind of intellectual tie and influence. Um, I, I went as an undergraduate to Ithaca College where I majored in history and then went to uh, New York University to get uh, a master's and eventually thought I would get a PhD in history and ended up stumbling into a class uh, being taught by Mark Lilla. Um, and actually, that's an interesting bridge to that column we might get uh, to talking about later um, uh, that I wrote yesterday about the current right, because the, the seminar that Lilla was teaching was on reactions to the French Revolution. Um, and so I sort of got hooked by doing this kind of kind of uh, the, the version of political theory that Lilla was doing was very informed by intellectual history. And I became very interested in that. And so switched streams and ended up just picking up a master's at NYU and then trans, uh, uh, transferring to Michigan State uh, to get a PhD in political philosophy or the political science department there. Uh, and there I studied with uh, Straussians, a certain kind of Straussian. There are many kinds. Um, but I remained very close to Lilla uh, intellectually and eventually as friends, and, and we've remained friends ever since. So why don't we dive straight into this column that came out uh, yesterday, and we'll include a link to it in the show notes. What's the title? Uh, um, it's uh, hold on, I have it right. Or here. maybe David remembers it's the title. Something like when when conservatives become revolutionaries. That's oh, yeah, something that's like and, that. That's it. And when um, when Demir sent it to me, um, I, I wasn't sure what to expect. I read it today. And I was excited because Demir and I, at least on domestic policy, not foreign policy necessarily, we agree on quite a lot. But I think there, I don't think we're on the same page in how we reacted to your column. Um, and so I'm excited to talk about this and to kind of tease out um, the differences. But maybe, um, do you want to say like very quickly? Um, what you're trying to express in that piece, like what's the elevator sure. pitch? Yeah. yeah. Um, well, it'll be a little longer than it'll have. it has to be an <laughs> elevator pitch in a like 80 story building. Um, uh, well, I mean, I've written many columns over the, the kind of the, the Trump era trying to make sense of what's going on on the right. And I find a lot of it very interesting and stimulating intellectually, but also some of it uh, faintly alarming. And the parts that I find alarming are, are the ones that we see in our politics, I think, all too often these days on both the right and the left. But we're talking in this column about the right is a kind of a kind of uh, frustration and um, anger and uh, disgust by certain leading um, uh, right wing thinkers with having to sort of share political space with people who disagree with them, which is a kind of unwillingness to uh, accept that 
all of us here in the United States, to take our country as an example, uh, we're part of a polity. We, we disagree about all kinds of things uh, on policy, maybe even on big moral questions, but we're all citizens. And even when we disagree, we play by certain liberal rules of trading off uh, you know, one party wins, then the other party loses, then that party loses and the other one wins and you hand off power and you agree to sort of rule and be ruled in turn, to quote in a line of Aristotle. And that's a kind of precondition of decent uh, liberal uh, democratic politics. And I, what I'm writing about in this piece is just pointing to a series of dots and connecting these dots of different thinkers who all seem to be moving in the direction of coming up with arguments that in effect are saying, if we lo- if we win political power, meaning we on the right, then we should basically get everything. We win everything and should be capable of uh, ruling without having to compromise or even imagining giving up that power because only people on our side can be the good Americans. And you see this, and then then you, the flips, so that's a kind of lapsing into a kind of one-party uh, authoritarian outlook. And then the flip side of that is that when the other side does gain power, this very quickly becomes a kind of insurrectionary defense of uh, a kind of revolutionary ethic that somehow the people in charge, they are illegitimate and we're, we're sort of entitled to do anything we can to kick them out because them being in power means that the end of America, the end of all that's good about the country. And, and you see, you do see arguments very much like that on the left, but in this kind, I write plenty of those. I mean, you said earlier how, how, uh, Demir, you, you tend to kind of look at the center right and, and Shadi maybe a little more at the center left. As a centrist, I, I sort of, I take my pot shots in both directions, uh, which is why I may have fewer friends than each of you. Um, but so I write plenty of columns about the kind of abuses and illiberalism of the left. But in this column, I'm concerned about what I'm seeing on the right, this kind of drift in this direction toward what seem to be arguments that imply that only a kind of one-party rule would be uh, legitimate. And that's extremely dangerous because uh, if, if people aren't willing to share political power, then it's not clear how we can govern ourselves. So do you, th- do you think this is, this is at its root a question of uh, a new kind of ideology because, you know, you have you, – you cite a lot of the sort of, uh, you know – well, I, I don't know if it, it fits, but it's in the sort of theocon category because theocons aren't necessarily Catholics or, or – but it's, there's this resurgence on the right of like these Catholic thinkers who, you know, it's, it's this – it's uh, like Adrian Vermeule, you know, being the, the main case. You, you, you hook your piece to his appointment now uh, to whatever role, administrative role he's, he's been appointed to by the uh, Trump administration. Um, but is it is it so much ideological or is it something to do with maybe political decay? Because, you know, the thing that strikes me about a lot of this as – because you're right, it is on both sides, even though I'm more concerned maybe because of my perspective from it coming from the right, it's that um, – you know, like the reason democracy has worked in this country in the 20th century has to do with, you know, uh, stable parties that that represented these these large blocks to a certain extent. 
And you're, you're at the same time you're, in your article, you're, you're hanging a lot on this kind of ideology, and you know, as you said from from Lilla, right? This this properly reactionary uh, post uh, uh, French Revolution um, uh, worldview. I mean, I, I had Saurabh Amari tweeting something uh, at me about the French Revolution. I forget if I tweeted something first and he came at me or, or something like that, but it was. I was I was you know uh, lightly saying that the French Revolution was a you know a terrible thing on 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 uh, on balance and he came and and really said it was it was the devil at work like literally you know literalist sort of religious um, stuff like that that to me that to me is 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 where the line is ideologically but I'm not sure that that's really what's driving this can you uh, yeah I, the the uh, yeah that's a good point and it is interesting um so uh, Sohab Arami and Vermeule and Patrick Deneen whom I write about in the piece and um, the last of them Matthew Peterson from Claremont all of them are Catholics. But by the same token, I'm not really hanging very much on that fact because I don't think you have to be a Catholic uh, of a certain kind even to stake out the position that they're staking out. And there are plenty of evangelicals and probably some secular Trumpy types around who would agree with them about a lot of what they're saying without it being uh, from a religious motive. So, I, I mean, for me, it has to do with the extent or the radicalness of your critique of the present. How wrong is the present and how wrong are my opponents in the political system? And I mean, the fact is, if we put this in kind of more, for, for now at least, in narrowly, more narrowly American terms, ever since, say, the New Deal, there has been a faction of the right in this country that has seen pretty much everything from the progressive era all the way down as illegitimate. This is a wrong path. Something went wrong. We shouldn't have an administrative state. We shouldn't have Washington and the federal government interfering in these ways. Um, this has economic dimensions with regulation and interstate commerce. It has moral dimensions with kind of toppling Roe v. Wade and saying that there are individual rights to privacy and the things that flow from that in subsequent social conservative rulings by the Supreme Court. There are many dimensions to this. But for most of that intervening, say, century, almost century, since a lot of these arguments have arisen, the people who are most animated by this illegitimacy argument about it have been part of the kind of right of center and uh, electoral coalition in this country, but have not been ruling members of it. They've been part of a more a kind of broader Republican coalition where the people in charge of the party were actually a little more moderate, a little more willing to compromise with Democrats, with, with, you know, make their peace with the New Deal, make their peace with some social liberalism since the 1960s. And what you're seeing in our moment is a really strong power play by the harder line dissenters to say, no, we've compromised long enough. We're tired of being junior members of this coalition. We want to win. And because Trump was sort of a part of, of that kind of broader coalition, the paleoconservative Pat Buchananite 
faction on the right that was for its own reasons on for, for foreign policy and other things very also a dissenting faction within the right since trump managed to actually win a lot of these folks i think have this kind of um, adrenaline rush feeling in their writing now where they feel like aha Victory is finally here. We finally can do it. We can turn back all the mistakes, all of them back through the 90s with Clinton, which mainstreamed the 60s, and then the 70s and the 60s, and then before that, the the, the decay of the New Deal and the Progressive Era, and just sort of make it all... Make it all go back, no longer ratcheting always a little bit more to the left, always a little more to the left. Conservatives mainly mainly only slowing it down a little bit, but then eventually it moves further left. Actually saying, no, we're going to stop it and pull it back in the other direction, and we're in charge now. We're the establishment now. We're going to win. And that's sort of what I'm, what I'm seeing and responding to, I think, in this piece and in others like it. Okay, let me see if I can offer up a bit of a, a counter case. It'll be somewhat, it'll be somewhat half-hearted because it's not my view, obviously. But since I do spend a lot of time with right-wing illiberal people of various sorts, I mean, initially I would do, I would spend a lot of time with Islamist illiberals in the Middle East, and now I'm trying to um, spend more time with those in the West. Um, so I'll put on my Sohrab Ahmari at, uh, and Patrick Deneen hat. So, I mean, as far as I understand their argument, a lot of it is responding to what they see as the maximalism of the left. And in this sense, they are quite literally being, they're quite literally reactionary, that they're reacting to something which they see as very ambitious and overbearing and uncompromising, and they say, well, look at the left. First of all, the left decriminalizes thought on the right, that things that would otherwise be considered to be part of the part of legitimate mainstream debate on things like um, gay marriage or trans issues, um, so on and so forth, are now seen as bigoted, now seen as, in some sense, quite literally evil, from the standpoint of the woke left and also perhaps more broadly, and they say, why should we play play nice when they already are portraying us as beyond the pale? And if they had their way, they would put us outside of polite society entirely. The left wants to defeat us. The left wants to marginalize us. And also, the left... Um, already has control of cultural mainstream institutions by and large um, when it comes to film, TV, um, mainstream outlets that are either centrist or center-left. Everything that most people are exposed to in, in urban centers, but also more broadly, because you can't really escape this discourse, is, is very much in this progressive vain and it's it's progressive in the sense that it always wants more for itself it's not content with modest victories it wants total victory and um and the the patrick denine argument would be that in an ideal world you would have classical liberalism 
But in the actual world that we live in, um, classical liberalism inevitably evolves into something more ambitious, and it becomes of the more modern progressive variety that involves itself more in the private sentiments and matters of conscience of individual citizens. So, I mean, coming from that standpoint, so that, that that's one. The other thing um, is that if they, if the left already has control of cultural institutions and, of course, academia um, as well, and if they win politically, it means that they control both the politics and the culture of the country, and their religious views are also now the ones that are more mainstream as more and more Americans um, become less religious and attend church less and so on. So that would mean politics, culture, and religion are all moving in the more progressive camp. So um, that's a very scary situation. So they feel like they're under assault, and they want to fight back. Um, and then the second part of this is illiber- we have to make a distinction, I think, between illiberal ideas and undemocratic ideas. From my standpoint, it's perfectly well within what's acceptable to promote aggressively illiberal ideas. And, and um, is there anything that is intrinsically wrong with that so long as they agree to abide by the rules of the democratic game. And now that's where I think I get a little bit nervous is if they're not willing to say, hey, if um, if the Democratic Party wins, then that's legitimate. We have to accept that democratic outcome. We'll fight. We'll, we'll live to fight another day. And hopefully in subsequent elections, our side will be able to win. But as long as they're promoting their illiberalism, through party politics and through democratic competition, and they're saying, we're going to try to promote our ideas and get most more people to vote for our side, and then everyone, and that, that's the democratic competition, that is part of what it means to be a citizen of this country. Now, I have my doubts about whether all these figures are fully committed to small-D democracy, but let's say they are, and let's say that they're also willing to respect the Constitution— and not break laws, so to speak. Um, what's wrong with being very illiberal? Okay, well, those are those are both good points, uh, and but very different ones. So I'll take them, I guess, in turn, uh, in the order that you talked about them. I mean, I I totally agree with the way that you construed the the kind of conservative side of the argument. And when I write critically about the left, uh, I often do so making similar arguments. Um, I, I think I even did at the top of the uh, of the podcast a little bit in describing my own views that when it comes to social issues, I wish the the left was more humble and not as intent on kind of not only winning when it's going to win, but kind of wanting to rub the face of conservatives in their loss and kind of making them grovel almost. Um, and I, I think that the, the thing that I write about in my columns a lot, in addition to kind of 
poking at or highlighting problems in the right. And then the left is, is a kind of more synthetic analysis of kind of how bad off I think we are in a lot of ways because both sides are triggering each other all the time, that we're sort of in a kind of feedback loop of centrifugal forces where where one, one side uh, kind of antagonizes the other, which makes it more extreme, which then antagonizes the first side, which becomes more extreme. And, and it's amplified by social media and cable and, and all, all of that kind of stuff. So that as time goes on, as the years and even decades roll on, we are polarizing in a very dangerous way in that and the end results or the well not end yet but uh, heading toward the end result seems to be the, the position that I pointed to on the right in this current column which is that well here are some thinkers who are now seem a little dubious about whether they even want to be a part of the same political community with those other people who they dislike so very much. And believe me, there are plenty of people on the left who feel that way about others on the right. And that's just plain bad politically. When a country starts going down that path, there are, you know, things do start to come up like, well, are we going to have a civil war? What are we going to be fighting about here? Uh, when, how long till weapons are brandished and so forth? Um, and that makes me very nervous, um, especially with the protests going on and a very well-armed citizenry. Um, so we can come back to that uh, in a little bit if you want. But my, sh my relatively short answer is I concede pretty much all your points and a pox on both sides, <laughs> both the, on both houses, on both sides, because... Yeah, the left is doing that to the right, but the right is now also doing that to the left as a kind of um, as a kind of one-upsmanship, and it just goes back and forth, and it's not civically uh, uh, very responsible. Um, for the other issue, I guess, I mean, I've seen Ashadi in your writing. You do often kind of come out as kind of indifferent about liberalism and very much a booster of democracy. I think that's a that's itself a big topic because I think some of what you mean when you say democracy are things that I would describe as liberal. Um, and so this is sort of about definitions to some extent. Um, I mean, but then the, the added complication is that the American political system sort of has, you know, you can call it liberal or you can call it Republican, small r Republican, but Either way, we're not a pure democracy really at all. We have like lots of democratic elements in our government, but they all are kind of intertwined with other ones and with kind of cockamamie rules that are designed often to give kind of counter-majoritarian outcomes. So if democracy means majority rule... Uh, the problem is that it's it's not so simple as the having you know going up to Adrian Vermeule and saying, "Hey, Vermeule, do you really believe that if the Democrats win fifty percent plus one, that 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 they should win?" And you know, I don't know what he would say. He'd probably wink and tell a joke and leave you wondering because uh, that's sort of his persona. But I think the problem is that. We have the Electoral College, and then we have the Senate, and we have these House districts, or they're often kind of obscenely gerrymandered. And each side, when it does win a, a, a kind of temporary victory, it uses every tool at its disposal to kind of maximize its advantage the next time around. And now we have many, many years and cycles of this having happened. 
And so that's a kind of institutional analog to the same polarization I was talking about before, where, you know, I mean, it's, it's hard to even say, like in an American context, what would it mean to be democratic but not liberal? Well, I mean, we don't have a straight democratic election. We have this cockamamie system where, where Hillary Clinton can win three million more votes than Trump and yet lose. And, and maybe this time Trump could even, maybe he could lose by four million and still win. And so then what was the democratic outcome of that election? I don't really see how you can even answer that question. But how about respecting democratic outcomes as the process is currently designed? So the electoral process, the electoral college is what we have. So I'm just, so we have a Senate, not ideal, but, um, the only way to change those things is, again, through the democratic process. So for now, we have to live with this. So if they're willing to say, well, um, and I think all of us should be willing to say that whatever this current democratic process produces, those outcomes should be respected. And if well, I had I would a con- say, all right, yeah, let, let me just interject there, because, I mean, on that, I do think that we're maybe not as bad off as some of what I'm saying might lead people to conclude, because... The number of people in our politics who would say, like, say, if you interviewed Democrats, how many of you Democrats say that if Donald Trump wins the Electoral College in November, but loses the popular vote again by a large amount, would you not accept that outcome? Very, very few Democrats would be willing to go that far. And I do think that on the right, there are very few who would do, would would go that far either. The problem, though, is that then you have the issue of voter suppression, trying to make it difficult to vote, trying to, to um, delegitimize the vote like Trump does all the time, indicating that if we have mail-in ballots, they can't be trusted. Now, that in the end won't come into play unless the election is within a certain margin of closeness. If it's a blowout, if 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 Biden wins by eight percentage points in the popular vote, then he's going to win an overwhelming majority of the electoral votes and there won't be a dispute. It won't be possible to realistically dispute it. But if it's within, say, three million or four million votes, it might be depending on how they're divvied up among the different states. And so that allows, I think, often more than the left these days, it allows the right to both say, no, we, we're playing by the rules. We'll accept the outcome. It's just we don't, we're not going to accept that how we get to the outcome can actually be enacted in a way that is considered fair. So we won't, you know, if you Democrats can actually win, we'll accept it, but we'll sort of stack the deck so that we can't be sure that it actually has been conducted fairly. Yeah, I mean, you know, the the there is some research, I think, like Larry Diamond ran some research recently uh, with a team, I think it was in Texas, I'll need to look it up, I'll put it in the show notes if I can find it. But in fact, actually, the, the, the figures about the legitimacy of the up- upcoming elections, it's it's a lot higher than you'd expect that on both sides that people are already saying that it's going to be rigged and it's it's not legitimate. So that's, it is troubling, you know, it's not it's not a vanishingly small number of people, I think, that, that do increasingly believe that. That, that does, you know, give me uh, some pause going into this. But you know, it's it's, the thing... I, and I think actually just hearing you talk now, Damon, I, there's not that much disagreement here. But how do I put it? It's like the thing that strikes me about your piece, the only way that I would maybe reframe it a little bit is that 
and maybe it's it's, it's something that Shadi and I also talk about here frequently. It's the role of ideas in in uh, these sorts of outcomes, and um, you said earlier that right, it's about who's who's in control of the party ultimately, and how are these voices now you know getting more and more of a of a leg up. I, I, it's on my list uh, of sort of where to get smarter is to read more about 19th century American politics. But uh, Chuck Lane at the Washington Post, as several times I've talked to him, sort of just keeps coming back to that. It's just like how, how zero-sum and how, how, how brutal uh, American politics were you know, leading up to the Civil War. Now, obviously, slavery was a big issue, but you know, even through Reconstruction and the rest of it. And then you know, I, I, I do think that a lot of people look at um, – 20th century America and say, well, you know, we've progressed and our democracy has matured in a lot of ways. We had uh, more stable parties and uh, s- things somehow cohered because th- th- there's something inherently uh, uh, coherent about the American system that that allowed it to cohere and flourish in the Cold War. I'm just starting to wonder whether that's true. And that's something like Chuck Lane also sort of, you know, wondered about to me when we talk about this sort of stuff is, whether, whether in fact there's something about the 20th century, in particular the Cold War, that 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 made it cohere a little better, that um, you know once the strictures came off, it's it's we're in a different ball game now. That you know uh, polarization. I mean, it's a very different country than it was in the 19th century. It's not. It's not a. Uh, it's a more diverse country. It's uh, a country where a lot of the sort of uh, you know call it, you know, wasp guardrails for getting into the elites have, have come off and there's there's more mobility for the good, but also it's a more it's a less stable country. And then the Cold War ends and you don't have this kind of unifying principle that really did uh, under undergird one of the most prosperous and most incredible parts of, of sort of the American experience. I, I, I wrote an essay a while ago uh, that sort of, you know, went and used Pat Buchanan's uh, uh, culture war speech at the, was it the 91... 92, that's right, 92 convention. That's, that's worth reading again uh, to see because he calls it at that point. He said, you know, we, 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 we defeated the, the, uh, uh, the great enemy uh, beyond our shores, uh, you know, the wisdom of Reagan and all the rest of it. But, but now it's time to look at the enemy within our shores. And he's very clear about that. Um, and, yeah, you know, so, so polarization, it, you know, one can talk about it, the parties are getting weaker. But I wonder if there's something inherent in society. Because I think you're right. You know, the ideas themselves, you know, this this kind of um, uh, fringe Catholicism that, that some of these intellectuals are, 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 are banding about, I don't think that has traction. I think it's fundamentally, even as you said earlier, there's something about Americanism, if you don't want to use the L word liberal, but like liberalism and Americanism are, are weirdly intertwined. You know, it's part of sort of the, the DNA of America. But I, I do wonder if it's it's the fact that this country was never really as coherent as we like to think because we look at the 20th century. And now, uh, you know, as as sort of the, the those bind, uh, binding elements uh, bleed out, we're 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 left with the kind of country that that just doesn't cohere as well, which then allows these kind of fringe ideas that don't have any political relevance in a democratic context. No one's going to elect Vermeule on his platform of, of uh, uh, you know whatever the hell it is. Common uh, good constitutionalism. Yeah, I, you know, I, no one. That's not that's not a winner. But but the 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 emotions and the that 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 kind of. Um, 
intolerant, uh, you know, and I think it has a lot to, you know, like uh, Joseph de Mestre, um, is, that, is that how you say it? De Mestre. Yeah, the, yeah, de you know, the, the whole sort of the world is ending, uh, has ended, you know, our backs up are, our backs up are up against the wall and, you know, uh, anti-democratic, like, you know, which, as you correctly say, you know, leads to Carl Schmitt, leads to the Nazis in, in one, one way of reading that. Um, whether that's now, you know, getting more oxygen largely because there's something broader and social that never really cohered that well. And now we're sort of experiencing the, you know, the, we're paying the piper in some weird way about it. What's that? Well, I, I agree with much of that. I mean, I certainly both at the level of politics and, and it's, it's various coalitions and fissures and cleavages. And then also at the level kind of of journalism of, of what's been going on in journalism over the last decade or so that the, I mean, I do think that the kind of the, we'll call it the post-war period from roughly the end of World War II through the 80s in, and then into the 90s were, were perhaps a kind of unusual kind of phase in American history that should not be the benchmark that we got used to it. And it was, you know, there are all kinds of positive things we might come up with to talk about how it was. There was consensus, very little dissension between the parties. There was a kind of broad agreement among citizens about what we should be doing in the world and how we should order the country. And then at that level of journalism, kind of very few outlets with a kind of broad, again, consensus uh, dominating those outlets so that there could be a kind of like very little disagreement uh, among between the parties. And then even when during the late 60s, when there was a lot of kind of social tumult and political uh, unrest, uh, you know, at the level of the political system, it didn't really make that much of a difference. I mean, to go from like Lyndon Johnson handing things off to Hubert Humphrey and then Nixon, who was, you know, tried to run kind of, you know, on a still very much a kind of a centrist platform. And compared to now, he sounds like a liberal Democrat, you know, he's behind the EPA and all kinds of other things, price controls that that a, a Republican would never do. So, you know, and that speaks to the fact that in those those um, 20th century decades, you had a lot of. The cleavages separating the parties were regional and class-based and not nearly as much about ideology. And and uh, the, the inverse of all that is that, yes, it's true. In the 19th century, the country was far less coherent and much more uh, volatile politically. And then, of course, the journalism there, there was no such thing as journalistic objectivity. You had a kind of house organs for for parties and unions. And so, you know, there was no such thing as kind of a paper of record. There was simply like, well, what are you? Are you a Tory, a Whig? Are you a Republican, a Democrat? Well, that tells you what newspaper you read. Uh, and, uh, and that's how you get your news is kind of through the lens of those partisan commitments. So like everything is Fox News and MSNBC. So maybe we're in all these ways, we're sort of reverting to a historic norm right now. That might all be true, although I would say that it still concerns me because we are now uh, very much a world power, a very powerful world power, and we are a nation that is interacting and uh, 
connected uh, via media in a way that we were not in that time. Uh, I mean, it was entirely possible in the 19th century to go months without really encountering much news of anything at the national level. The government also couldn't do all that much compared to now. It didn't interfere with or have tentacles into so much of our lives. Uh, in the way that it does now. So we're sort of bound together in a way much more tightly than we ever were at the time when we were more kind of, uh, dis, uh, kind of disattached, uh, at the level of, uh, of the society in the 19th century. And so you combine a reversion to that kind of polarization and kind of, tumultuous political culture with the country that we are now at the level of our connectedness and power and uh, powerful federal government. Um, and that's not a, that's not a good mix. Um, I think it's, it, it's, I don't know, it worries me a lot. And I do agree with you that some of what we're seeing with people like Deneen and Vermeule and others on the right who are kind of buying into these kind of further right European uh, style political arguments are perhaps partly a function of the fact that people are looking for kind of a bigger, harder, blunter instrument, a kind of more of a sledgehammer to do battle against their opponents than a, a kind of, than a, than a you know, um, you know, something a little subtler that might have worked in the middle of the 20th century. And I, th- I, I think there's also this aspect of um, what might be called elite over overproduction in the sense that um, perhaps people could have been uh, more radical or have more crazy outside the Overton window views, you know, uh, 20, 30, 40 years ago, but um, there just wasn't enough opportunity to just spout off. I mean, right now, anytime you have an idea, even if you aren't really a writer, there are any number of ways to promote your ideas. And I'm not even just talking about the obvious stuff like Twitter, but Substack, Medium, all the different outlets that have spread that cater to smaller audiences. There's just a lot of ideas out there. And that it, that increases the need to differentiate your ideas. If if there's such a saturation of of written product and even spoken product with podcasts, you have to find ways to stand out. Like if you want to start a podcast now, it would be really boring to just have a centrist podcast. Two guys sitting around <laughs> agreeing with each other. Yeah, you know, <laughs> and not be. I mean. There's got to be something that makes you interesting. And I think in this kind of media environment, we're all looking for what makes us more interesting than the next person. So, I mean, um, and also just that, I mean, Twitter, it's it's not even just elite overproduction. It's overproduction from like normies. They're just like normal random people who spout political opinions. And what's somewhat unusual about this moment is that we're exposed to these normal, normie opinions, which is great from a sort of democratization of uh, information standpoint. But I don't see all of my mentions because, especially if I'm being attacked nonstop and I have a quality filter on Twitter, but I do see um, a lot of my mentions. So there could be someone with 20 followers and I'm exposed to his opinion. I mean, there's something kind of beautiful about that and also terrifying that 
they actually can get their ideas out to not to say that we're the most important people in the world, but like Demir, myself, and you, Damon Linker, we are seeing views that would otherwise be um, subject to the gatekeeper effect that we we would prevent those people from reaching us. But now they can reach us directly. That's kind of cool in a way. You know, just before it, it you... is. It is. Although I could I just jump in. Yeah, briefly go ahead. By on all that, means, that, yeah. that it's. I'm a little bit more maybe in the direction of the terrifying side of it. <laughs> I mean, I mean, I, I'm immersed in all that, and I, I wonder at it myself in positive ways, too, plenty of times. But I'm enough of a kind of classicist uh, in, in the sense of, like, classical political philosophy, again, student of Straussians, um, to be really wondering, like, there is a reason why the American founders, when they came up with the structure of, of our government, had to really try to convince themselves and everybody else that it was even remotely conceivable that a, that a government, that a republic as big as ours then could survive. And now we have 320, 330 million people, and then technology is kind of bringing ever more of them into a kind of public square. Um, you, could you have an agora of 330 million people and expect it to turn into anything other than the biggest fist fight in world history? Maybe not. I mean, certainly you bring Aristotle or Socrates back and say, oh, you thought Athens was kind of a mess. Well, take a look at this. I mean, I, I do worry quite a lot about the, the precisely the fact that, that as our democracy becomes more and more democratic, more and more people kind of wired and looped in getting their say, the person with 20 followers, you know, having the big, as big a micro, uh, big a megaphone as you or I or, yeah, E.J. Dion or Paul Krugman or whoever it is, like all of us just kind of screaming at each other all the time. Um, is that workable? And I, I sometimes, you know, on a bad day, I think it might not be. I, even more. I mean, I it's it gets down to the question for me. Uh, again, we're, we're sort of back to it is is is, uh, you know, I, democracy works if you have if representation works on the basis of interests and the ability to understand that, you know, you'll get your turn and those interests are still somehow bound into a cohesive single unit unity of identity. I think that's one of the things that, again, I think we've gotten used to thinking that this is not a big problem, but, but if we're not, if we're not making Americans all the time and in fact are just sort of subdividing and privileging plurality, pluralism and diversity rather than a certain kind of, cohesive sense of whole now without without squelching without any of the rest of this i'm just reminded i mean it was it was a uh, a former colleague of mine said to me you know he said um basically uh you know he's like as a jew uh everything that's happened since when i was growing up when you know his dad was uh, basically working class and he was the first to go to college got a phd and everything um he said like the opportunities have been massive by the the falling away of the gatekeepers you know for 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 jews for catholics it's it's just the transformation just my lifetime has just been enormous but he said you know there's cost to that at the same time and these costs i think we're 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 
we're starting to feel it in that cohesiveness. And it's it's one of those things that I mean, even even today, this this decision by the Washington Post to to you know create the the capital W white category, um, you know, I, this is, it's late in, and I know you got to run soon, Damon, but it's just one of those things that really strikes me. It's 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 a it's a blow against uh, a certain kind of cohesiveness to the project that that worries me about all this, and that's why I think your article, despite all the sort of framing, you know differences, agreements that we have. I, it's, it's To me, that's what's so, so terrifying about it. Well, since we are running out of time, I, there is one thing I wanted to, to bring up with Damon, if I may. Um, that Okay, so one, one thing that you, you talk about in the piece, but also in, I've, I've seen you talk about in other places, is that this idea that, okay, conservatism, it's about conserving. But as you rightly point out, if, if you want to conserve things now, you're conserving a status quo which is already quite liberal and progressive. So what does it mean? You, you bring up a really challenging question. I'm not sure what the answer is. If someone wants to be a reasonable conservative in the sense of conserving what is great about the country and those things are no longer there because we've changed so much and progressives have gained so much ground on social issues... And there's the obvious examples um, where gay marriage now is a con- not a consensus issue. There's still people who don't agree, but they kind of have accepted their defeat, and they realize that this is the new this is the new approach that the majority of Americans have. What is a reasonable conservative supposed to do? when there's not a whole lot left for them to conserve. And you sort of, you you kind of leave it open as an open question. But I found myself wondering, I mean, what are they supposed to do? Well, if it's if it's about the social issues that ultimately, I think both historically and sociologically, you'd have to say they are ultimately rooted in religious convictions, then I, I, I mean, I, I let me bracket that and say, you know, I... I know the arguments of people like you say Robbie George at Princeton that like you know you can defend uh, you can defend you know um, traditional marriage purely on the basis of reason. I, I actually am skeptical of that, but let, let's let's bracket that and and say yeah maybe okay if that's true then if that's true then all they need to do is do politics and try to persuade people that they're right. And if it doesn't work, what are you going to do? I mean. That's like saying if you lose a political battle, you should be allowed to kind of throw a temper tantrum about the fact that you didn't persuade enough people to win. And in politics, uh, I don't really see that as as a viable strategy if you're going to stay within the kind of liberal democratic uh, sphere because um, you have nothing to do but keep trying to fight and then try to win. And if you don't, keep trying or give up. Um and but uh, I'll kind of along those same lines. If it's something else, if you concede with me that in most cases people are say anti-gay marriage or even on abortion, if you're like absolutely pro-life from conception on, your conviction probably comes from a religious a religious source. 
If that's the case, then my view is you can try to persuade people in the public square like any other thing, like just as if you're against Social Security. You think it was a terrible thing to do. It, it, you know, it, it pulls down the economy. It keeps us from being vibrant. It makes people lazy when they're old. I don't know what the arguments would be, but you could, you could imagine, you know, working for something like the Cato Institute and trying to push the argument in 2020 that we should get rid of Social Security. I think you'd get nowhere, but you can try. Similarly, with those other social issues, you can try to do that. Or I think the more reasonable thing to do would be to become a missionary and try to make more people to be devout Christians and Jews and Muslims. And if more Americans became that, they would become more conservative on those issues. Um, those are the options, I guess. What what bothers me about kind of the Deneen Vermeule, Matthew Peterson approach that I talk about in my column is that it it sort of doesn't do that work. It sort of instead wants to engage in what Hegel would call an indeterminate negation, which means just kind of smash the whole thing. So like Deneen's arguments are very powerful precisely because he wants to say the problem is everything. It isn't just the 60s. It isn't just Democrats. It isn't just liberals. It isn't even like some of the Claremont folks say. It isn't even just the progressives. And then he doesn't even think it's, you know, whatever, a certain strand of the founders. It's all of liberal modernity. It's Hobbes, Locke, before them Machiavelli. It's the whole thing has been off on the wrong the wrong track. And if you go back to the very beginning, you can see that teleologically it would end up exactly with transgender rights. And therefore, there is no political back and forth and compromise and trying to win the argument next week if you fail to persuade people this week. It's the whole thing somehow has to go. And that strikes me as a kind of extra political claim that brings us far outside the bounds of kind of normal politics, which is what I'm pointing to in the column with like talk of civil war, talk of revolution, talk of overthrowing the whole system and replacing it with something else. Well, part of the problem, it seems to me then, is that too many Americans and too many people more generally in Western democracies find liberal liberal modernity to be compelling. It's, 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 it's ultimately... The fact that there are not enough people who agree with Deneen and there are too many and apparently a growing number of people who find this, for all of its faults, to be pretty good compared to the alternatives. So at some level, even if they try to persuade more people and to be missionaries and all of that, they would probably fail. And I think that some of their frustration is born out of perhaps a conscious or subconscious realization that liberalism, and as a, as a, as a critic of liberalism who still considers himself liberal, such as myself, for all the criticisms I make, I come back to this, this sort of final answer that it might be pretty bad, but it's also kind of pretty good. Well, I certainly believe that, but I mean, I, I would slightly reframe what you were saying. I agree with you that, uh, but I would put the emphasis on the other side. I think 20 to 30 years ago, say like in the 90s, 
there was an overwhelming consensus that this is indeed pretty good, and then a, a relatively small kind of Pat Buchanan faction that dissented from that. And what's different about our time, especially in the last five or so years with the whole populist turn, is that there are now more people who are willing to say, you know what, this isn't very good. I actually don't like this very much. This is going in a direction that I would like to change at a very fundamental, in a very fundamental way. And so even if they don't have enough to win, if they have, say, 30%, that's 30% of the country that, uh, that, you know, is pretty, pretty hard critics of the rest of us. And uh, that's not a recipe for a very smooth political system. Damon, uh, I know you have to have to run, but this was really a treat. Really uh, great talking to you. Uh, well, like I, like Shadi said, we'll definitely put a link to your column there. I, I really think it's it's certainly the best thing I've read this week, and it just resonated with me in a lot of ways. Um, I think uh, we've got a we've got a, a really bumpy five months ahead, and and then I think a, a really you know in the uh, Chinese cursed sense of the word, interesting few years <laughs> ahead of us sure. after that. Yeah, so yeah, have me on again maybe in a few months and we'll we'll uh, kind of revisit some of this. Unpack it again. Great. Thanks so much, Damon. Thanks, Damon. Bye-bye. Thank you. Bye. Bye.